If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And we will be at the end of chapter 1. As we come back to Luke's Gospel this morning, we want to be reminded of where we are in the story. If you will remember, Luke has opened his book by telling us of a godly couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah. These two were elderly, and they had no children, not by choice, but because they were unable to have children. And being a priest, specifically the one chosen uh, this time, a one-time event for him to go into the temple and offer prayers on behalf of the people of Israel, Zechariah suddenly found himself visited by an angel. This messenger from God said to the priest, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. The whole thing catches uh, the priest off guard, and his first response is not amazing, wonderful, thank you God, it's how will I know this is true? That, that wasn't the right answer. In fact, the angel says, because Zechariah did not believe this word of the Lord, he would be struck by God, unable to hear or speak until the promise is fulfilled. Zechariah goes home. He loves his wife. And nine months later, God's word comes to pass. And this couple, who should be grandparents, possibly even great-grandparents, are suddenly parents for the first time. And as the entire town comes to celebrate with this elderly couple whom God has blessed, they ask, what what is the name of the child to be, Zechariah? Still deaf and dumb, he nevertheless now believes the word of God. So when he is asked the name of the child, he grabs a writing tablet and boldly writes, John is his name. Immediately God unstops his ears and loosens his tongue, and he is suddenly able to hear and speak again. Nine months of silence. And what does he utter first? Praise to the living God. He blesses God for blessing him. And this is where we arrive at the end of Luke 1 this morning. The traditional title of our passage is the Benedictus, which is the Latin term for the blessing. Not only is that the first word that Zechariah says, but is also descriptive of all that is going on in this passage. This priest is blessing or praising God for what he has done. And as we think about this song, what we see in the reasons that Zechariah gives for praising or blessing God, in fact, are reasons that we ourselves today can thank God and bless him and praise him for what he has done, not only in the life of Zechariah and in the people of Israel, but in our lives today. For the very things that God is beginning to do through John and his cousin Jesus have an effect that ripples throughout all the nations, throughout all the world, until God himself returns to bring about the end of this age. So this morning, as as a means of fueling the worship of our own hearts. And as we will see the service of our lives, let us read this song-like prayer that Zechariah offers under the filling of God's Spirit to God the Father, that we ourselves might bless the Lord. 
Follow along as I begin reading Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 67. And John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. Through the birth of his son, Zechariah can see the hand of God at work. And from that work, five blessings emerge. These blessings come not just to ancient Israel, but to all the peoples of the world. Therefore, as we see Zechariah blessing God for what he has done, we see five reasons why we too should praise God for things that he has done. Not just for these people, but for us as well. First, we should praise God because of the provision of saving power. We should praise God for his provision of saving power. Look again at verse 67. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's such a simple truth, but it's essential to remember when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to our relationship to God, we do not, we cannot rely on anything that we have done, but only what God himself has done for us. Salvation is not our work. Salvation is God's work. And in these opening verses, Zechariah is clear that God has revealed, he has provided his saving power. This revelation has come to his people, and we see that it is first a revealed provision. It is a revealed provision. That is to say, God has made it known among his people. You may remember, if you were here or if you've read Luke, what we see earlier in the book, that the events of the last nine months uh, have been momentous for the world, and yet only a few people know anything about it. Only the few people in this family directly, and more broadly, this small village, have any knowledge of what God is doing in the world. One elderly couple has received a son whom God has given them, and their cousin is expecting any day now the promised Messiah himself, supernaturally conceived in her womb. It's everything that Israel has hoped for, and yet happening in a way they never could have imagined. All the more so considering that for the previous 400 years, God has not spoken a word to his people. 
For, for, for year after year, decade after decade, God would give prophetic utterances to his people through the prophets. And they would, they would help bring them back in line where, where God was wanting them to go. Even sometimes when uh, they thought they knew what they were doing, that they were doing something good, sometimes God would, would speak to them and say, no, uh, you You've missed the boat. You're moving in the wrong direction. Sometimes it was when sin was wildly flourishing among his people. And he would, he would dramatically send prophets to, set, to denounce the people and to call them back to faithfulness to God. Suddenly, after 400 years, God is speaking in the world again. But he isn't doing it in the halls of power. He isn't doing it among the religious elite. He's not even doing it in the capital city of his people. God is speaking into the lives of a a people in a rural town on the very edges of Israel. And yet, Zechariah is clear that God should be praised because in this, he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, we read that word redeemed in light of the whole New Testament, and we have a much richer understanding uh, because of it. But did Zechariah know all that we know? Absolutely not. He didn't have Paul's letters, right? He didn't have Peter's exposition. He didn't have the Gospel of Luke in front of him. All he has is the Old Testament scriptures. And though you have hints and glimpses of what salvation would be in its fullness, in fact, on this side of the cross, it becomes easy to see what God is preparing to do, but, but not so for them. In fact, as you move throughout the gospel and see Jesus trying to teach his people, his disciples, what he's about to do, it is something that nobody was expected. He laid out the blueprint and foreshadowed in the Old Testament what was going to happen, but it was such an amazing thing that God would come down, take on flesh, and die himself for his people that they could not, they could not see it coming with clarity. Nevertheless, the joy that has welled up in Zechariah's heart was real, and it was rooted in this, that God had once again come to his people. He had revealed himself to them. He is visiting them. He is redeeming them. Isn't it interesting that nine months ago, Zechariah could hardly believe that God would simply provide a son, but now he stands on the, on the front edge of the redemption that's about to be accomplished, and he sees it as a done deal. God has visited and redeemed, past tense. It's done, it's complete. God has said he's going to do it, and therefore we are assured it will be done. What a change that God has brought about in Zechariah's heart. We see that this provision of his saving power has not simply been revealed to his people, but it will also be a powerful provision. It will be a powerful provision. In verse 69, we read that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us, in the house of his servant David. Now, what is this horn? Now, if you're like me and you have more urban cultural background and experiences, you're thinking Miles Davis trumpet or something along those lines. Okay? You're thinking musical instruments. You know, maybe if you're thinking biblical worldview, you're thinking of the shofar or something, right? But that's the wrong cultural background. Perhaps if, if you are from uh, the, the West or grew up on a farm, you, you might have a better inclination that this is not talking about a musical instrument, but it's the imagery of an animal's horn. And it's very, actually common in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 92, the psalmist says, Behold your enemies, O Lord, behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. What, 
what we are being told here, but what we are being reminded is that it is the horn of an animal that represents power. It's a sign of strength and power. And if you think about the ancient world, it's not hard to understand that. Think about the Gregarian society of the ancient Near Eastern peoples. They have nothing mechanical, right? Maybe a chariot or something, but uh, what is that driven by? Not an engine. Horses, right, is driven by animals. And so it is, in fact, uh, animals that represent strength and power to the ancient peoples. And think about, particularly in that part of the world, in other parts it may have been an elephant, but in that part of the world, a massive steer fits the bill really well. You can imagine this, this massive beast with these horns. In fact, not really knowing much about this, I used Almighty Google and searched for prize-winning steer. And it was amazing the pictures that came up. It was not uncommon to see horns that spanned 80 inches, not to mention the size and the weight behind these beasts, sometimes as much as half a ton. Now, can you imagine being around a beast like that, maybe multiple animals like that, and seeing them get mad? I mean, angry, like, you know, like uh, Bugs Bunny, Looney Tunes kind of angry, you know, where like, you know, the eyes are gorging, bloodshot, and steam is coming out. If I was around, you would see a running from the bulls, let me tell you. Uh, I, I would be out of there, okay? It, it, would, it would scare me to death. Now, what's the point of all this? The point is, Zechariah says, God has raised up a horn of salvation, a powerful means of salvation, and he has done that from the house of David. What, what, is, what is the house of David? The house of David just means his descendants, his lineage, his dynasty. So from among King David's family, God has raised up a horn of salvation. What that means is that a man will be invested with the power to save God's people. Who is this man? Well, at first you might be tempted to think it's, it's John the Baptist. It's, it's Zachariah's own son. But with a priest for his father, we know he's not from the line of David, but from the line of Levi. And what we, have see, what we will see as the book unfolds, and what has already been hinted at in the prophetic word given to Mary about her son, is that it's not Zechariah's son, but Mary's own son, Jesus, who will be the horn of salvation. He will be the instrument of God's saving power. It will be a power for salvation unlike anything that anybody has ever seen before or will ever see again. But how will this power come about? How, how is it that God is visiting his people, making provision for their salvation? Zechariah says it's because of the fulfillment of sworn promises. The fulfillment of sworn promises. Therefore, we should praise God because it is his sworn promises that he is fulfilling. God has visited his people and raised up his saving horn, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah says, under the direction of God's Spirit, what God is doing is all because he swore an oath to Abraham. God spoke a word of promise to that man and now he's making good of it, good on it. First of all, these sworn promises are prophetic promises. They are prophetic promises. He says that he uh, has visited his people and raised up a saving horn as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of, of uh, holy prophets from of old. Zechariah is saying that this was not something that should have been unexpected. It wasn't something in that sense new that God was doing, but rather it's something he already said would happen. 
The prophets looked forward to this coming power of salvation. And on one level, that was true generically. Throughout the prophetic books, you just start at Isaiah and read to the back of the Old Testament what you will see over and over and over again is God promising, I will be gracious to my people, I will show up, I will deliver them, I will save them. But specifically, specifically you have glimpses into Christ himself. Consider Micah chapter 4. There we read the prophet telling Israel, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Israel, who is, who is being threatened by distinction because of exile and their enemies, he says, you will be like this metal beast, this undefeatable oxen treading grain as if, uh, or treading your enemies as if they were grain. And just a few verses later, God explains how this saving power is going to come about. He says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What do we see in chapter 2 but Jesus being born of Bethlehem, coming to be the shepherd of his people. He has come in fulfillment of the prophetic promises God has given, and he has come to establish peace between God and his people. Promises spoken by God were not just prophetic, they were also liberating. We see liberating promises. Liberating promises. Verse 71, God has visited his people and raised up his horn of salvation that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now many commentators speculate that Zechariah is thinking here in political terms. That he is believing that it is the Romans and others who hated Israel and sought to oppress them at best, destroy them at worst. It will be from them that they will be saved. And that certainly may be the case. We know even from among Jesus' own disciples, after Jesus' death, Jesus appears to these men on the Emmaus Road and they are still thinking in terms of of political redemptive terms until God begins to, to open their eyes as to who Christ is and what kind of ministry he had. But Luke has also told us this is a prophetic word from God. So even if the mind of Zechariah, as he is speaking these words of blessing, is processing this truth in political terms, we have to think about it in canonical terms. We have to think about it from God's perspective, the one who is giving the prophetic word and is going to be bringing it about. And what we see in the fullness of time is a far richer and more meaningful promise of salvation. As the revelation of Christ continues, we see more and more of his work and it becomes clear that what we have is not just liberation from some army, not just political freedom. We have liberation and freedom from every spiritual enemy that stands against us. So Paul can say in Colossians, you who were dead in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross of Christ. There he disarmed the rulers and authorities, that is, the demonic spiritual forces that oppose God. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul says this is the this is the true liberation. This is the true freedom that we have that nothing now stands in our way from having peace with God. God has fulfilled his promises, prophetic promises, liberating promises and covenantal promises. Covenantal promises. God has visited his people and raised up his horn of salvation to show, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave behind his family and his land and to follow him, to, to, to make him Abraham's God, promising that in return he would make Abraham's name great. Later in chapter 15, God reassures Abraham of the promise that he gave him. And he reveals the means by which he would make Abraham's name great by giving him a multitude of descendants, descendants numbering as many as the stars in the sky. Now here's the interesting thing. At that point in his life, Abraham is just like Zechariah. He has no kids. And he's an old man. He's, he's, he's at the age where you are hugging grandkids and, and great-grandkids. He, He's not the age to be siring children. And yet God says, don't worry about it. I've got you covered. This is my power by which this will come about. And it will be amazing. He says, go out onto the beach. And if you can, if you can count the grains of sand on the beach, then you will know how many your descendants will be. And if, and if you go out and, and look up at night in the stars, and if you can, if you can count all those stars, Abraham, th- then you will know. Then you will know how many descendants you will have. And here Zechariah sees the coming of the Messiah as part of God's faithfulness to keep his promises to Abraham. He says, well, that's great, but what does that have to do with us? Friends, it has everything to do with us. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So this is why this is significant to us. This is why God's promise to Abraham and him making good on it is significant. It's because this, if you are here and you are a Christian today, then you are part of God's fulfillment to Abraham's promise. You are his spiritual descendants grafted into his family in fulfillment of God's word. Think about that. We're talking 4,000 years after God makes a promise to an old man who can't have kids. He not only gives them enough kids that they are a physical nation, but now he says all the nations can take part. Abraham, beyond what you can imagine in Israel, every man, woman, and child can be part of your spiritual descendants when, like you, they have faith in me and now through Christ. What kind of confidence should that give us in God that 4,000 years later he is still making good on his promise? 
He is still keeping his word. You know, we have seen that theme over and over and over. We're not even out of chapter 1 yet in Luke. And it has been pounded into us. God is keeping his promises. God is keeping his promises. And if we are not careful, we will say, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Let's, let's move on to something else. But, but the reality is, if we, if we dismiss that as something non-essential, as something that is nice and pleasant, it will be devastating to us spiritually because there will come a time, the, the, the winter months of our spirituality, when we will have, because of sin, drifted far from God, or perhaps pain and suffering is pounding us on every side, and we are going to be tempted time and again to believe God is not faithful. God doesn't love us. God is not going to take care of me. God is not going to forgive me. He's not going to save me. And it's in those times we reflect back just on the first chapter of Luke, where we see again and again and again, no, no, no. God will keep his promises. And if he has promised to love you and to care for you and to save you to the very end, then he can be trusted to do it. He is a God worthy of our confidence. He is a God worthy for us to stake all of our life on and to worship all of our days. The third reason that we should praise God is this, because of his calling of servant people. The calling of servant people. Why has God done what he's done? Why has God visited his people and raised up his saving horn among them? Zechariah says it is in verse 74 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is why God sent salvation for his people, that we might serve him. Now, is that new? No, not at all. Think back all the way to Exodus. Do you remember what God told Moses when he spoke to him from the burning bush? Moses Moses was hesitant to go back to Egypt and represent God to Pharaoh. And what did God say? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So when Moses tells Pharaoh to let Israel go, it is because that God desires all of his people to serve him. In fact, no less than 15 times, Moses says, the reason why God is saving his people is that they might serve him. It's important that we understand that, but what exactly does it mean to serve God, right? It's one thing to acknowledge, okay, I must serve God, but what does that mean? I think one person rightly says to serve God is to glorify him in our worship and in everything else we do, leading holy lives. In other words, it's not just about doing something, it's also about being something. It's not just about the actions of our hands, it's also about the character of our heart. That is service to God. And therefore, one person, another person has said, the essence of worship is responsiveness to God's commands, responsiveness to God's command. Think about what that means. It means God is concerned with more than just getting us to heaven. That's great. But there's more to knowing God than just getting to heaven. God is concerned with us loving him and serving him and obeying him because we know him. You know, it's almost become something of a cliche now, an entertainment trope. In any kind of dramatic or action-oriented book or film or TV show, whatever it is. At some point, it is almost guaranteed that an authority figure will be disobeyed. You know what I'm talking about? It's either, you know, uh, government, uh, you know, someone in the military or someone in the police force. They, they get some order in their gut. They just think, that's not right. And so they defy the order and they go off and they do what they think is right. 
And sometimes it's not just because they think the order isn't right. Sometimes it's because they have no respect for the person doing it. They just think, this guy's a clown. He doesn't deserve uh, my respect. He doesn't deserve my obedience. I'm going to go do what's right. And they defy the order. Right? I mean, we've all seen this. It's a common part of our culture. But let's apply that now to our life with God. Have you ever disobeyed one of God's commands? I'm tempted to say, raise your hand if you think you haven't, but I know you would be lying. We have all disobeyed God's commands, and yet think about what that is saying about our view of God. When we disobey, it says either we think the command itself was worthless, not worth our time, or that God himself is not worthy of our obedience, not worthy of our worship and our service. That that becomes a sobering thought, doesn't it? But notice the salvation that has come to God's people so that we might rightly worship God, that we might truly serve him in a way that brings him glory. So God doesn't just save us from the eternal consequences of our sin. He saves us also from the temporal consequences that would be lived out in this life. He reorients us so that more and more and more we will be rightly serving God and worshiping him, not disobeying him. And Zechariah describes the service in three ways. First, he says it will be a fearless service, a fearless service. What does it mean to serve God? Verse 74, God has delivered us from the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear. Fear comes in this context from having enemies. But we are told God has delivered us from our enemies so that we need not fear. Now think about all the things that might cause us to fear in the spiritual realm. All the things that might cause us to not serve God as we should, as we should. Sin, guilt, punishment for those things, God's curse upon our life, Satan's wrath in the midst of our life, and eternal destruction. Yet in Christ, God has dealt with all those things. Christ's death has propitiated God's wrath against our sin. He has expiated our guilt and alleviated the punishment that we so clearly deserve. Moreover, his triumph on the cross, as we've already seen, has brought an end to the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil over our lives. So that now, when we look forward as God's people to the future, all that we need be worried about is how quickly we're going to enjoy eternal life with God. We do not fear eternal destruction or death or any other thing. We have simply the promise of life and fellowship with him forever in our way. In other words, fearlessly now we can serve the living God. Likewise, the service we offer should be a holy service. A holy service. We to serve him in holiness and righteousness, according to Zechariah. Nobody likes sloppy service, least of all God. Now that we have freedom from sin... We should seek to serve in holiness. Isn't that, after all, what Christ desires of his people? In Ephesians 5, Paul says that Christ saved the church, that he might sanctify, that he might make her holy, washing her with the word, verse 27 of chapter 5, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God has saved us to a fearless service, a holy service, and finally, a lasting service. A lasting service. Zechariah says we are to serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. What does that mean to live before him, to serve before him all our days? Well, it's very much what the theologians mean when they use the Latin phrase, quorum Deo. That means before the face of God. 
and it speaks to living in his presence. To live before God is to live our entire lives intentionally, remembering what he has done under his sweet and sovereign gaze over us. The problem comes when we want to check out. The problem is we want to hit pause on the service button and go off and do our thing for a while and then come back in and serve God again. We will say something along the lines of, look, I put a, a solid 14 hours in for God today. It's, it's my time now. Now, we don't actually say that, do we? We're far too pious for that. But we might as well because that, that's kind of our attitude sometimes, isn't it? I, I, I'm going to do this and do this and do this. And just when I come home, I want to relax. I want to put my feet up. And now it's just me time. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't relax or have fun. But frankly, it's never me time. The, the, the Bible does not have that as an, as an option for us. It is always God's time that he is giving to us, and we must wisely understand how to use and live before him. The kind of service that God calls us into is not the kind of service you can punch in and punch out of. It spans across every moment of our lives for all of our lives. And again, that's because it's not just about doing, it's also about being. It's the kind of service that actively acknowledges God's complete reign over my life and therefore joyfully remembers that God is truly good and so this reign is not oppressive. It is not a mere duty but a delight to give, to live before him all my days. Isn't Isn't that what we sung earlier? Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. So sometimes, sometimes we need to not just, you know, have, have a sing-songy voice and go through. Think about the words that you're singing because we forget this reality. And, and the hymn writer is saying we need, to, we need to speak to ourselves and say, wake up and remember, he has died for you. He has lived for you. He reigns forever. He has done this for you. Therefore, he is your king. Live for him for all of eternity. But where do we begin? How, how, do we, how do we live Coram Deo in the presence of God? Well, we begin to get a glimpse of it in the ministries of John and Jesus. The things that Zechariah now turns his attention to very directly from praising God to now praising God indirectly, as it were, as he holds his infant son in his hands and now begins to speak directly to him. And here we see that we should praise God because he has given the knowledge of spiritual pardon. He has given the knowledge of spiritual pardon. Zechariah has seen the big picture of what God has done for his people, and now he shifts his vision. His, he, he's, he's held this son named John, and his tongue has been loosed. He begins to praise God immediately. And, and as it were, as his eyes have been lifted up in thankfulness and praise, his eyes now turn to the gaze of this, of this young child. Barely a week old. Before we begin to think even about what he says to his son, we should think about just the, the natural God-centeredness of Zechariah at this point. Fathers, perhaps you understand this. The, the one thing a father wants to do as he holds his child is to beam with joy and pride at what God has given to him. He wants to now, especially, post pictures on Facebook and on Twitter and send them everywhere and call grandparents and and great-grandparents and cousins and nephews and uncles and and to let everybody know, look look at this beautiful baby. Have you ever seen such a thing? I mean, come on. We all know, yeah, all babies are cute, but they're really not. But this one really is. This is beautiful. It's amazing. Look, look, Look at this thing. 
Think about Zechariah all the more. He's been told, your son's going to be called great, the greatest among men. This is the greatest boy who's ever been born. I mean, how could you not want to just say, look at this thing, it's amazing. But that's not what he does first. The first thing he does is he stops. And he begins to praise God because he knows that far more important than his son will ever be is what God is doing through that son for the world. And I just wonder if, if, if that is the orientation of our thinking in our life. Is, is, is God the first thing that is provoked in our thinking and in our affections, even at something like the birth of a son? So what does Zechariah say about John? First, he praises God and blesses his son for the prophetic knowledge he will bring. For prophetic knowledge. Prophetic knowledge. He says, And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Now again, how many decades, how many centuries since the last of the Old Covenant prophets has been speaking to God's people and now Zechariah sees that his own son has been born and he will take up that prophetic mantle once more. He will stand in that long line of servants who had been gone for so long, prophets of the Most High. In fact, John is the bridge between the Old and the New Covenants. He is the last of the Old Covenant prophets upon whom all the others rest. As he sees the Lord's anointed, the long-promised Messiah, he's able to stand face-to-face with him and say, there he is, that is the Christ. That's not how he began his ministry. No, John was called to go before the Lord to prepare his ways, verse 76. In other words, John was God's one-man advance team as he was about to come into the world. He had long ago promised in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel as his people are languishing in exile and steeped in idolatry, God has said, one day I will come and I will redeem you, my people, because I love you and I have not forgotten about you. And now, now John is brought into the world to get people ready for the Lord's coming. Think about, think about that mission and why it's important. Think about it like this. If I just showed up at your house one day and, and I kind of frantically knocked on your door and said, come on, come on, I'm ready. I, I, I've got the car. It's cleaned out. Your whole family can come in and I'm going to take you straight to the hospital. And you're thinking like, you know, can I see your eyes? Are they dilated? Can I smell your breath? What, what is going on with you? What, what are you talking about? Or, 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 or perhaps I, I come and I've got this, I've got this box and it's, you know, marked overnight shipping, and you see it costs a, a crazy amount of money to, to ship, and I knock on the door, and you're thinking, you know, what is this? And I say, here, th- this is for you. This is a, a, a very expensive prescription med- medication that Charlie treats a very rare disease. And again, you're just thinking, thanks. Why, why do I need it? But, but let's say before I showed up, s- someone else came first. Maybe, maybe it was my, my wife or, or, or one of the deacons. But, but they frantically knocked on your door, and they said, uh, there's been, a, there's been a problem with the phones in your area and no one's been able to get a hold of you, but, but you've got family that are in desperate condition in the, in the ER right now. They're actually undergoing surgery and, and, and th- th- they need you there. And suddenly I show up and say, come on, I'm, I'm ready to drive you to the hospital. Wouldn't you be thankful for that ride to the hospital? Or, or perhaps the, the, the person showed up and, and, uh, and, and, and you answered the door and, and for whatever reason you, you, you've not been around mirrors all day or other people and this person says, whoa, look at your face. Have you not seen that? You're like, what are you talking about? They say, you've got this rash that's just all over and, 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 and I know that that, that that is the one symptom of this rare disease that requires this expensive prescription alone to treat. And then suddenly I show up with the box behind them at the door. What, wouldn't you 
graciously and perhaps greedily grabbed that box and began ripping it open to find the instructions on how to, to take this medication. Likewise, God's people are going to have no concept of Jesus coming, defying their expectations. He, he, is not, he is not coming with a sword ready to begin slaughtering the Romans to stand over their bodies in triumph. He, he is coming with a shepherd's staff to, begin to, to speak, sometimes gently, sometimes harshly to his sheep and to, to shepherd them back to God, ultimately leading them up a hill in Calvary. We will climb up onto a cross and allow himself not just to be physically brutalized by those Romans that they thought he came to defeat, but suffer under God's wrath, the eternal judgment that we ourselves deserve. And be put into a tomb and then rise again to take his place at the right hand of God as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. That, that is so far beyond what they were expecting, both in glory, but also in kind of salvation, that they need someone to get them ready. Israel, at, at the time of John's birth, is, is existing in this odd tension of, of a few pious people who are still awaiting, longing for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And we're going to look at them next week. People like Simeon and, and Anna. And they, they just know God is about to do something and we're longing for it. And you've got people who, who think that they know God, the spiritual elite, but really they don't. They simply know the rules well. And you've got the masses who are desperate for somebody to tell them how to be right with God. They, they, they go to the temple. They know the sacrifices. But they just know that their lives do not match up to the holiness that is proclaimed in the law. How can we know God? And John comes in. And he begins to, 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 to bust up the proud people. And, and, and I love, he, he says, come on, you've got to come and you've got to, to, to repent and, and be ready for God is coming. Get right with him and, and do good works in keeping with repentance. And the, the Pharisees show up, like, what's this all about? And he's like, who told you brood of vipers to come down here and be baptized? Whoa. But that's what they needed to hear. To, to wait, nobody tells them, don't just trust your heritage that you are sons of Abraham. God can take these stones and turn them to sons of Abraham which would have been better in their mind than the Gentiles he was going to bring in. But then he looks to the rest of them and says, says come on, God, God loves you and he is willing to receive you. Re- repent and turn away from your sin towards God. This is the kind of preparatory work that God is doing that this people might, that might have a saving knowledge. This is the second thing that we see, that John is coming to give a saving knowledge. We're told in verse 77, Go before the Lord to prepare his people to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. In the old covenant, there was always one more sacrifice to be offered, more blood to be spilled, new forgiveness and life with God to be sought. But that would be the case no more very soon, for God was going to come and offer up the perfect sacrifice of his son Christ, bringing them lasting forgiveness, a kingdom that would stretch not just across a little patch of Palestine, but across the entire world in a new creation that would last forever and ever. It's a wondrous calling for John to preach such a wondrous salvation. But after all this time and all of Israel's sin, what had led God to do these things? What had driven him to give them such a gift. This is the, the final thing that we see. The mercy of shining peace. The mercy of shining peace. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here is the reality. God's mercy is driving the whole thing. His people, then, his people he's calling today, we don't deserve salvation. God does not owe us anything, but in his mercy, he gives it to us. He gives us a thing that we can never earn, that we can never deserve. He gives us specifically this peace. We see it's a messianic peace, a messianic peace. That is, it comes through the Messiah. Zechariah says that this salvation shall come because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, what is that about? What is this sunrise? Well, uh, the, the, the word we see in the Old Testament can refer to a plant that, that sprouts up or a star that, 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 is, uh, that appears in the night sky or perhaps the sun itself rising in the morning. Moreover, in Malachi 4, we read this amazing passage. God says, For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You say, that's not that amazing. It's nice. Well, but listen, listen to the rest of it. Just three verses later. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now it becomes amazing. Because in just two chapters, we will see everybody looking to John the Baptist and saying, well, he's just like Elijah. He's just like Elijah. And in fact, we're told he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah, doing exactly what Malachi and Zechariah said he would do, preparing the hearts of Israel that they might turn away from, away from their sinfulness and back to the righteous ways of their fathers. It's no surprise And the early Christians said, it is the rising sun of Christ's glorious light that Zechariah is talking about here. Did not Jesus himself say in John 8, I am the light of the world? Did he not say in Revelation 22, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star? But what will this rising sun of peace do? He will give a revealing peace. A revealing peace. God will visit us, verse 79, from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Again, this was promised by God in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings the brightness of your rising. It is not just an absence of knowledge. It's not just that kind of darkness. It is a darkness that is in the shadow of death. It is a lack of knowledge of God and peace with Him that threatens to be felt in the eternal furnace of God's wrath. It's that kind of darkness that God comes in the person of Christ and He wakes us up to. He reveals to us our our desperate need of Him. And then He guides us into the way of peace. This is the last thing we see. Jesus comes and he brings a guiding peace. God will visit his people to guide our feet into the way of peace. That is exactly what Christ does when he comes. He shows them how to have peace with God. That is his purpose. He is the Savior who brings a word of peace to all who would be right with God. Even today, that that mercy of God comes to us. We rebel. We mock. We are re- relentless in running away from God and doing our own thing. But he is even more relentless in showing us mercy and giving us grace, lifting up his son in the message of his son that we might have peace with him. Years ago, a Salvation Army officer named Captain Shaw went to India as part of a medical mission team to take over the work of a leper colony there. 
Soon after arriving, it is said that his eyes welled with tears as he saw three lepers in front of him, their hands and feet bound by chains that was cutting into their diseased flesh. Shaul turned to the guard and said, please unfashion their, their chains. It isn't safe, the guard said. These men are not just lepers, they're also dangerous criminals. Shaw says that they're suffering enough. I'll, I'll be responsible for them. Loosen their chains. So the guard gave the key to Shaw. Key went and gently unlocked the shackles and began treating their bleeding ankles and wrists. About two weeks later, though, Shaw had misgivings about freeing the criminals because he needed to take an overnight trip and he had a wife and child he would have to leave behind and he was fearful for their safety. He talked to his wife and she assisted that she wasn't afraid that God would do what he would do, and he would likely protect her. So Dr. Captain Shaw left. The next morning when Mrs. Shaw went to her door to open things up and be ready for the day, she was startled to see the three criminals lying across her front steps. They woke up and one explained to them, we know the doctor's gone. We stayed here all night so that no harm would come to you. This was their response to the doctor's act of love to them to freely, graciously serve him in response. That should be our response as well. As God has freed us from bondage to sin, that we might live lives of holy service to him. This morning, we stand on the promises of God that Zechariah knew and loved so well. We have received the benefits of God's visitation of his people. And our first response should be humble worship before God. His patience toward people, his fidelity to his word, his holiness in dealing with sin and his mercy toward sinners. All of it should bring us to our knees in adoration and thanksgiving, leaving us in awe that God would look on us with such grace. But then with love for the one who loved us, we should rise up from our knees. And walk in faith, resting in the peace that we have with God through Christ, longing to honor and serve Him in all that we do, joyfully, obediently following His commands. Father, only You can can truly provide that response. It's nothing any person could convince another to do. So God, I pray that through the exposition of Your Word this morning, that You would have opened our eyes to the glorious salvation that You were bringing seen, glimpsed, predicted by Zechariah as he holds his newborn son, the one who would prepare for the coming of this salvation through your son. Father, this morning may we we see and delight in you the God who is faithful, the God who is gracious. And may our response be one of love and fidelity and service to you. God, we ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.